Kevin. Welcome to the Happy Bear Podcast. We're Dave and Steve, and the Happy Bear Podcast is about helping you to eat better, to live a better life, and have a laugh, really. Absolutely. This week, we've got an amazing guest, Dr. Melanie Joy. She's a phenomenal author that really digs into what makes us all tick in terms of communication and how we can communicate better so that ultimately we can have better relationships. She's a doctor of psychology and lectured in psychology in Boston for a decade or more. She's the author of seven books, including her latest book, which is about how to stop injustice. She's the lady, lady behind coining the phrase carnism, which is the kind of invisible system with how people eat meat. She's fascinating. She really, really is. We get into the detail of relationships and the core of how we can communicate better and what is at the core of most issues and injustices within the world. She's a phenomenal human and has the great ability to articulate the complex issues into simple bite-sized pieces. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Melanie came to visit us in person, came swimming with us, and we had such a joy hanging out with her. She's amazing. Time to pay the bills now. Um, As we said, this podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. They're really, they're the only shoes we've been wearing for six years. And really, we wouldn't take someone as a sponsor unless we really believe in them. And this is a company and these are shoes that we've seen it in ourselves. Our feet have become more natural. They're stronger. They're wider. I can isolate. There's this kind of movement called toga, which sounds funny and sounds stupid, but it's where you can isolate your toes and move them kind of Individually. Individually. And through wearing shoes, at least there's even research from Vivo at universities that your feet muscles will typically improve by 60% within a number of weeks of just wearing barefoot within shoes. Within 100 days, I think 100 it is. Days so, and even think about it logically that in a house, the foundation or the base of the house is the really the, the most important bit which the structure sits on. And the same way we kind of, we just wear shoes without thinking about it, yet our feet are the foundation. And when you've got them in shoes that actually encourage the natural kind of movements within your feet it enhances every aspect of your anatomy yeah so uh, if anyone does want to try them out uh, Vivo Barefoot are offering a 15% off with the code HAPPYPAIR15 and you have nothing to worry about they're offering a 100 day return policy so if you don't like your Vivo Barefoot you can return them free of charge yeah so check them out VivoBarefoot.com full range of shoes for all the family from formal to casual to kids um, and everything in between so 15% off Happy Pair 15 we're jumping right in here now. Um, <laughs> like, you know, you've obviously got, you know, eating animals, you've got all the isms, you know, ageism and racism and feminism. And there's so many isms that there are in the world. Yet across them all is a common denominator amongst all impressions is it comes down to relationships and how we relate to one another. And you've been incredible at deciphering that down into a formula, mm. into a simple formula that... You know, it sounds quite uh, right brain or whichever left brain, you know, left it, sound, brain, left it brain. sounds very kind of technical, but it's a really wonderful formula that has really, you know, helped us understand communication and interpersonal relationships. Yeah, well, well, thank you. Should I, yeah. do you want me to yeah, share yeah, the yeah, formula? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that like an let's invitation give, let's give us this magical it? formula, this formula okay. to solve all your relationship this problems. Are you ready for it, folks? Have your Save pen and paper ready. Have your pen and paper this ready. Is, this is definitely one. If you don't have a pen and paper, get your phone out and open up the notes app. <laughs> Save the world with a formula. Okay, formula we... for a better world. Yeah, I mean, so so if you, I mean, when we talk about injustice, um, you know, often when we're talking about any form of injustice, we're talking it through the talking about it through the lens of like philosophy or sociology sociology, sometimes economics. I mean, these lenses matter, of course. Um, and there's been a neglected sort of lens that, you know, I think needs to be worn when we talk about this issue, which is the lens of relationships. Because if you you look at these isms, you know, all these problematic isms in the world and the big problems in the world beyond the isms, you know, just, um, you know, problems in our toxic workplaces, abusive relationships, 
these problems do share a common denominator and that common denominator is relational dysfunction, dysfunctional ways of relating. And so what that means is that a common denominator in ending all of these problems is relating in a way that's healthy, you know, building what I call relational literacy, the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating. And so relational literacy is not the solution the solution to all the world's problems, but no solution is going to be complete without relational literacy. And relational literacy is based on, you know, it's made up of a lot of principles and tools. They're all, you know, anybody can learn these if they want to. It's and, not and relational science. literacy for anyone listening. That just means it, having good relationships. It's the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating. It's like being literate in relationships, like it's being literate and the ability to, you know, read or write being literate and how to have healthy relationships. And so you can build it. So this is, you know, it's a skill set that not people taught, can build. Like it's something like we're almost taught it like by aping, by copying other people. That's, or that's by how copying it's common culture, which is very much, you know, you've got celebrities yeah. and drama. Drama is always, it sells papers and it sells that's TV right. shows and it sells everything. So drama tends to be emphasized. So I see even my children, they, they model drama and oh, all the sensational stuff. And you're going, oh my God, that's, that's not going to create good interrelationships. Yeah. Or they model their parents. And, you know, I mean, I know you guys are amazing from what I've seen. Mm, amazing from parents. What I've seen. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Many things. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, we all learn this. I always say this. It's, a, you know, amazing to me that we, most of us have to learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use. And we don't get a single formal lesson in how to relate in a way that's healthy. You know, and when you look at the problems in our world and in our personal lives, these are not problems that are caused by people who can't do geometry. Um, so relational literacy is all of these principles and tools are based on this one key formula. So once and again, folks, go. this, is the, formula. this, is, this is the formula, um, the formula for healthy relating. Okay. And this, this formula applies to every interaction, right? It could be a communication communication. I should say is the primary way we relate. It's the most important place to focus. And does on. that include body language? It just includes wondering. body language. Okay. Um, but I would say the primary way we relate is actually through words. But yes, communication definitely applies uh, to body language. And the pr primary way we communicate is on social media or digitally these days. Most communication happens online. Um, so this formula applies to how we relate to, you know, other humans, to non-human animals, to the environment as social groups and so on. And here's the formula. In a healthy interaction, we practice integrity and we honor dignity. It, it's that simple. And I'll break this down. And so that equals people safety know. and security. And exactly. That leads to a sense of security and connection. Yes. You get an A. Um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Practice integrity and honor dignity. And honor dignity and this dignity. And this leads to a greater sense of sense of security and connection. But let's talk about what it means to practice yeah, cause, integrity because like in, they can be abstractions. Integrity and dignity sound like words that are baked into like, you know, the, the, the independence, constitution. the constitution of a country or whatever. Like they sound like grand words that yeah. we don't typically use on a daily basis. Integrity, yeah. obviously people, most people will understand. I remember the first time I came across integrity, dad found me climbing on the roof, trying to bring a lovely young woman in through the window in my bedroom. As you were 17 uh, years old. I was 17, just to, yeah, no, that wasn't recently. Uh, that was when I was 17 years old. And I remember dad made me read the seven habits of highly effective people. And we, he made me like sit down and talk about what does integrity mean? And like, what is it? And my understanding of integrity could be right or wrong, but it was that like, we practice what we preach. We honor what we say. We are true to our word and we're only as good as our word. That was my understanding. Mm. How does that stack mm. up? To yeah, well... 
for, kudos for your dad, for one. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, and to make that even more concrete for people um, is, you know, integrity by definition is the integration and it's the same root, integra, integration of our values, our core moral values and our behaviors or our practices. But they're on alignment. And so, yeah, it's it's alignment between values and practices, even more specifically. So we practice what we preach so that we're... Yes, except that people can preach different things, right? Yes. And it doesn't mean, I mean, you could, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't really care about compassion, for instance, you might preach something different and, and still practice that. But that said, the core moral values that have been found to be most commonly espoused or embraced by people in cultures all through the world are the values of compassion, sometimes referred to as caring and justice or fairness, right? So when we practice integrity, we basically practice fairness. We treat other people or animals the way that we would want to be treated if we were in their position. Beautiful. This is, you know, another way of saying we practice respect. So that's the practice of integrity. Which sounds very much like a religious, you know, in all religions of the world, they'll typically treat your neighbor as you want to be treated. Like it's a very basic philosophical totally. concept that's baked into most kind of how you should be to be a good human. Totally. You know, it's of. the golden rule, you know, and if you whittle down, you know, that the sort of you know, spiritual teachings around the world, you know, you'll, they'll, they'll come to, you know, land on this to a large degree. So practicing integrity is, is treating others, practicing respect, treating others the way you would want to be treated if you were in their position or yourself. Like, so the formula applies to how we relate to ourselves as well, I should mention. And we are always relating to ourselves through our self-talk, through the choices that we make that impact our future selves, for example, right? So we need to practice integrity toward ourselves as well. We can talk about that a little bit more mm. later, but let's talk about what honoring dignity means. So it's not an abstraction. Yeah. Cause dignity, dignity, it's a lovely word, beautiful word. Sounds lofty. Sounds, sounds very great. Dignified. So, uh, dignified. Dignified. Dignified what word. Does digni yeah. Tell us what dignity means. Cause I couldn't define it really very well. So dignity, your dignity is your sense of inherent worth. It's the sense of being fundamentally worthy as a being, right? So when you honor someone's dignity, you think of, it's a perception and it's also a treatment. You think of and treat them as though they are worthy of being treated with respect, of occupying space on this planet, just like everyone else. When I honor your dignity, I don't see you as in any way inferior or less worthy than I or anyone else on this planet of being treated with respect, you know, treated the way that I would want to be treated, no matter what you have done. You know, you could be, you know, anyway, we'll get back to that. So when we practice integrity and honor dignity, this leads to a sense of greater security and connection. And if you think about your own relationships, and I've already seen this, like that, I know this is the tip of the iceberg for you guys, but the richness of relationships that you have around you and not just relationships, but like relationships that are secure and connected is pretty astounding. So if you think about one of these relationships that you consider really good, you know, many of them surely probably recognize that like you trust that the other person perceives you, they respect you and they see you as fundamentally worthy of being treated with respect as a being on this planet and you feel secure and connected with them. Yeah, absolutely. It's so distilled. Like when you, when, like when you say it, like the fundamental of human relationship are down to Honor, dignity, um, practice. Honor, integrity. Honor, honor, sorry, no, honor. practice integrity and honor, dignity. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it sounds so simple, but when you distill them, it's quite profound and it's quite, mm. it is like linking two golden rules together. 
that no one is better than everyone else and treat everyone the same, treat everyone the way you would like to be treated. And and I think of it as a parent, like, you know, as a parent, you really want your kids to feel very safe and very secure and to really feel valued and worthy. And I guess that's the basic fundamentals for all relationships. If we treat others like, uh, it, you know, the best parenting version of yourself really, and, and anyone who's a parent who's listening will will want those things for their kids. And if you can treat others with that, like our mother used to always say, just give a smile, get a smile. Give a smile, mm. get a smile. If you give a frown to the world, the world's only give you a frown back. And this is what we used to say just when we were like five and six mm-hmm. and she'd bake it into us. And I really think that that metaphor that if we can, the same way we would treat our kids in a really loving, kind, compassionate way, if we can treat others with that, it's only the world's going to give that back to us. Yeah, well, totally. And and there's no guarantee. I mean, there are plenty yeah. of people who are, you know, relating in a healthy way. And yet the world is what it is. And people are have their traumas and they're fractured and they're conditioned in different ways and they may not react in such a positive way. But the more you practice the formula, the more you increase the chances that another person or whoever you're relating to will practice the formula toward you. I mean, just think about it when somebody, well, let's actually talk about the opposite of the formula to talk about this point. Yeah. You know, so the opposite of the formula is violating integrity and harming dignity. So when we violate integrity and we harm dignity, this causes us to feel insecure and disconnected. And if you think about a relationship in your life, maybe not one in your, you know, immediate circle, but maybe it's an online troll, you know, somebody who's just like posting negative comments about your whatever, um, you know, chances are you do not feel that that person practices integrity toward you. They don't respect you. They don't honor your dignity. You don't feel secure with them. And you you feel certainly smaller. don't feel connected. You typically like, well, say, say even in myself, I tend to be more sensitive to these things and I'll see someone flinging some negative comment at me or at the happy parent. I'll feel like, oh. You know, I feel disappointed. You won't feel worthy. Yeah, I feel less worthy, and yeah. I feel a little like, kind of like oh. guilt or shame or something. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't feel like doing this. You know, I feel like uninspired and deflated. Yeah. A smaller version of myself. Well, that's a perfect example, mm. and and that's what happens. Like when you are that's so. I talk about when we think of the formula. You know, like most things in life, the formula is not either or. It's not that an interaction is healthy or dysfunctional. You know, it's more or less healthy or dysfunctional. So, so it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum, right? So healthy relationships, uh, healthy interactions, I call relational and not unhealthy ones. I call non-relational. And so these non-relational behaviors that you're describing, right? Where somebody is not honoring your dignity, you know, they are typically shaming, you know, they communicate to you when somebody harms your dignity, the communication is that you are less than you are Mm. less worthy than others. And that is is shaming. Shame is is making someone feel less than you. Shame is the feeling of being less worthy than others of, or, you know, of an idealized version of yourself, because we can shame ourselves. And many of us do this, but shame is that feeling of being inferior, morally inferior in some way. I'm not as good as I'm less worthy than others as of being treated with respect of occupying space in this planet, you know, so on. And it's very sad. And shame is an non-relational behaviors are shaming. Um, and shame is an incredibly, it's an example, like, so say in an intimate relationship, like, if one partner is physically oppressive to another one and, and kind of damages their self-confidence, they might feel shame. Is that even some, even perfect example, sometimes to my wife, I can speak with as though I'm better than her because I put things back where they go. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I do that. And it's only through awareness that I realize you're being arrogant and you're being shameful, Stephen. She Mm -hmm. just functions differently to you. Mm -hmm. And that's cool and respect it. 
But sometimes I, I notice that I can do that sometimes and I often feel like, ooh, that's not very nice. Well, we all do it. I know, <laughs> just, I know, I know. But I'm just trying to bring it there to simple, like landing these conceptual concepts. Yeah. No. Conceptual yeah. concepts. Good man. Great, Thanks, good, Dave. good work, yeah. Thanks, Mel. Yeah. But that is actually a perfect example. I mean, and, and it's it is. subtle. Like it's not like kind of we're out in the whatever. Totally. But most shaming, many, many shaming behaviors, these non-relational behaviors are subtle. And they're, they're so widespread, you know, they're so, a lot of them are so normalized, like posting something like your first ex example, you know, when people post criticisms and, and maybe not very nice criticisms of the happy pair or something online, how you just feel, you feel smaller. You start to shrink inside of yourself. You start, you feel ashamed, you know, or you feel like you've been shamed. And so it's, it's fine. I mean, we're not going to agree with all behaviors. You know, you, if you're married for any period of time, you're in a relationship for any period of time, you quickly learn that there are, we have very different lifestyles, very different needs, very different behaviors. And it's totally appropriate if your partner's doing something that is bothering you to point it out and to, you know, ask to meet in the middle somehow or whatever that may be. The problem comes in when we start to think of difference as deficiency. When we say you're different than I am, therefore you're deficient, you're somehow less than. Um, and we all do this, like, because we're all socialized to think this way. And because we're, you know, we have these psyches, these egos that cause us to compare ourselves to others and, you know, think in terms of better or worse um, than. So, you know, it's, but the problem is when, you know, we have in our minds the flip side of shit. Well, actually, maybe we should d differentiate shame from guilt yeah, for listeners yeah, who are yeah, like, wait a minute. Because cause guilt seems like it's, I feel guilty. It's like, oh, I feel guilty. I didn't, I forgot to do a job at home or I. Recap, David Flame, what a shame. Okay, so shame is where your self-worth is diminished. That's how I understand it. Where That's right. Guilt is, where guilt is probably you feel less than about something towards another. So like digging. shame is towards yourself and guilt is towards the other, towards something outside of yourself. Is Not exactly. Like but people say that a lot, the difference between guilt and shame. So guilt is how we feel about a behavior. Shame is how we feel about ourselves. So guilt, we feel guilty when we think I did something wrong or I did something bad. And guilt is a really important emotion. It's a pro-social emotion. It motivates us to like, you know, course correct when we need to. People who don't feel guilt don't like care about their impact on others typically yeah. and course correct in order to, you know, change their, their, you know, behaviors in the future. Um, the, the problem is that a lot of times guilt in our minds turns automatically into shame. So we do something, it's a behavior we engage in that like, we're like, I shouldn't have done that. I feel guilty about that. And then we get ashamed because we've basically been born into this relationally dysfunctional mess of a world that's so shaming that most of us automatically, as soon as we feel guilty, we think, Oh, I feel ashamed of that. But anyway, guilt is about a behavior and shame is about how we feel about ourselves. Okay, yeah. um, and shame is a really, you know, a big, big, big problem um, for us. Shame is an incredibly demotivating emotion. Shame is, shame is, we can only feel ashamed when we have learned to buy into a story, a myth that some individuals are more worthy than others. If we didn't believe this, on some level, we wouldn't feel ashamed because we would recognize that no matter what we do, no matter what we say, even if it's causing harm in the world, which we obviously don't want to do, we can still honor ourselves as beings and feel a sense of worth.
Wow. Uh, quick question is, so say we live in a society where it's celebrity culture. I mm. even look at my, my son, he plays football and he thinks Ronaldo and Messi are like the most heroic humans They're in non-humans. the world. They're, They're non-humans. <laughs> and I wonder, does celebrity culture then almost like rupture um, an individual dignity, self dignity dignity because we see them as greater than us even though they're simply footballers that we, exist we've experienced this. we've experienced a tiny bit of that where people come up and want mm. you to sign a book or they come up and they're really excited and whatever and sometimes you kind of feel uncomfortable because you feel like they're looking at you as being better than them and it's like I'm no better than you are like like I'm, there's, there's zero. I'm a normal human just exactly like you so let's just be normal like instead of that kind of thing Yes, I so mean, does celebrity culture disrupt our own personal our dignity, dignity, our own dignity? Well, I mean, so many things disrupt our sense of, you know, so many things do. And celebrity culture, for sure, it's just like one manifestation of many. I mean, every time you see an ad that the ad, I mean, the reason products sell, most products anyway, sell is because we've been made to believe that we're deficient, that we're not good enough unless we buy this next face cream, unless we like, you know, change ourselves in some certain way. We get this car, we're suddenly going to feel like we get Apps, we have, we yeah, but it's very short lived. And so, so the flip side of shame is contempt. And Ooh. this is like a really, really important emotion to become aware of because contempt is, contempt is, uh, the best way to, dis- or the way that this is typically defined is it's like judgment plus anger. So a lot of sounds scary. Like when I hear contempt, I think of like some John Grisham movie and there's someone planning on killing. No, no, no. It's 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 in most most interpersonal um, relationships, romantic relationships. Content is the root cause. Contempt. Yeah. It's the root cause. Like this obsessor Burrell and all these other people, you hear them say it, that when contempt starts to manifest in relationships, that's like a clear sign that it's it, it can potentially be reaching towards the end because it's usually one of the great levers to a relationship ending. You're absolutely right. Yeah, research has shown, like John Gottman's re- um, research showed that contempt is the one emotion most likely to destroy a relationship. It is a relationship wow. destroyer. So Judgment and anger. Yeah, it's it. like judgment and anger merged. So here, here's the way to think about it. Like, let's actually just back up a step and think about anger and then we can come to contempt. So anger is, um, the emotional, it's a normal, legitimate, healthy, emotional response to witnessing injustice. You know, when you see something that's unfair or you're experiencing unfairness directed toward yourself, you're probably going to become angry as a result. So you're standing in line to pay for something and somebody cuts into the front of the line and you've been waiting, you're probably going to find yourself feeling angry. Um, you know, we think about the great injustices of the world and, you know, anger, moral outrage even is a, it's a normal response to witnessing injustices. Anger is a really important emotion. It's an emotion that is an indication that your moral compass is working. And it's an emotion that motivates us to take positive action on our own or others' behalf to rectify an injustice, to rectify something that's wrong. People who don't have access to their anger are often people who don't put up boundaries in their lives, you know, who don't say no. For There are all different reasons for this, yeah. you know? Um, so, so anger is important. When we relate to our anger in a healthy way, we can use our anger in a healthy way to create a better world, you know, or better relationships, better lives. So in a relationship, you know, an interpersonal relationship, if you notice you're feeling angry, ah, okay, something's going on here. What am I not, what am I angry about? Because maybe something needs to get discussed, 
you know, something needs to change here in our interaction. When we relate to our anger in a healthy way, we recognize it for what it is. And it's nothing more and nothing less than an emotion. That's it. It's a data point indicating that there may be an injustice present. Maybe there isn't. And we're just imagining something's an injustice, right? Yeah. Um, when we relate to our anger in an unhealthy way, two things are typically the case. One is that we've become blended with it. That means it's sort of like we're not thinking we of it as anger. an, yeah, we are our anger. Instead of thinking, Anger's I feel angry, you I know, am angry. yeah. Or a part of me is feeling angry, which is even better. It's a great way. If you are feeling angry and you say a part of me is feeling angry, it gives you some separation to the anger. We say, I am angry. I and the anger have become one. And often it has the charge of contempt. Contempt is the flip side of shame. As I said, it's the feeling of being more Ooh. worthy than others so of being treated with respect. There's arrogance in it. There's a way in which when we feel contempt, we've placed ourselves in a position of moral superiority. Oh, yeah. Right? Oof. And contempt is oh, like- contempt. No, I get it. Oh. But it can be very, very subtle. subtle. And sneaky. it shows up. It's a, it's a, it's oh, sneaky, it's a it sneaky one, I've that's contempt. And it's gone on my head. Like it's gone on my head. It's not like outwardly. And I think I'm keeping it in, but it's probably spilling out all over the place. It's oozing. Yeah, so yeah. contempt is- when you think you are better than someone and you experience anger as well. Yeah. Where you're feeling a, a like you're looking down on them. It's a, it could be a sprinkling of anger. It could be a lot. I mean, you could feel contempt to a greater or lesser degree. And we all do, you know, like we all do. I mean, this is where, you know, we can talk about this later if you want, but meditation and mindfulness practice, you know, is really, really, really important in helping to offset these, these perceptions that we have of worth, you know, worthiness. But when we feel contempt, you know, we end up communicating with another person, you know, in a way that suggests that they are somehow inferior. We shame people from a position of contempt. So when you're feeling contempt for someone, they're probably feeling ashamed when you communicate with them, because you're looking down on them in some way. And wow. it can be very, very subtle, but it is no yes, no less really powerful. And so contempt and shame are two sides. I call them two sides of the non-relational coin. One cannot two exist. Two sides of poor relationships, like the two sides. Of That's right. It's two sides of the coin, right? You can't have one without the other. There's, you can't feel less worthy than someone, you know, unless there's somebody who's more worthy to compare yourself to and, and vice versa. Yes, the two sides of the same scales. We're, su we're such like, like, like what you're talking about here is like at the root cause of all injustices, impressions, uh, oppressions, bad things in the world, it typically comes down to relationships. And, you know, as you said, we, we aren't, we aren't taught relationship skills. Relationship literacy is not taught in schools. And even when I'm hearing you, you're like, your formula is brilliant. Like, you know, to practice integrity. Even I'm 43 and I didn't know what content actually meant. Contempt actually but, meant. But I mean, you're talking about words, it's like, you can feel it and you can yeah. understand it at a feeling level, but to put words on it sometimes is hard. Oh, I've experienced it loads of times in me. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been contemptuous towards lots of times. And it's yeah. We all have. Nice. Yeah. But to practice integrity and to honor dignity and therefore it will equal typically more success security and safety and better connections. And I'm just right. wondering, how do we apply, like, like if, if someone, like everyone listening has gone, that sounds amazing. That sounds great. How do I apply that? Like, how do I start applying that to myself and go, well, all my relationships, like life, they'll always say that the, the, the quality of our life is the quality of our relationships. And the Harvard longevity. Yeah. The Harvard long, like there's so yeah, much research yeah. that backs that up, that the relationship is the real wealth of our life and we're not taught relational literacy. So, so yeah. how would, how would, 
anyone listening or ourselves kind of go, right, how do I put this formula to practice? How do I make my relationships even better? Well, I mean, first of all, it, I think, um, there are a lot of ways to do this and I'll like, you know, say we can start with the belief system, like this deep, deep belief that is ingrained in all of us to a greater or lesser degree that causes us to believe that some individuals are more or less worthy of being treated with respect in the first place. As long as we believe it to be true, as long as we believe that, for example, the prisoner on death row does not deserve to be treated with respect because this person killed somebody or whatever they did, you know, we are feeding this mentality. We are feeding this mentality. So, and it's really hard for people to realize this and to, to step out of the mentality because it is so deeply ingrained. Most people will be like, would be like, well, yes, but this person did horrible things. You know, what would you say about Hitler? This person did horrible things. Why should we not treat them in a way that's horrible, just like they treated other people in a way that's horrible? And, you know, and why we shouldn't is, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. Integrity, treat others like you want to be treated. So that comes from you as an individual rather than what they've done. It starts from you have to take responsibility for yourself. There's that. Absolutely. You know, and non-relational behaviors, right? These behaviors that are shaming and contemptuous that are that violate the formula. um, They're contagious, Right. If you and they've done study after study on this and researchers say that these behaviors, they call them toxic behaviors, they spread like the common cold and they're not necessarily compartment. They're not compartmentalized. So you may feel that somebody is not worthy of being treated with respect. But the minute you act on that, you are contributing to the epidemic of dysfunction and harm in the world. And, and it is, it is a form of bullying, subtle bullying, but getting back to your question. So, so what do we do? So one, how how do we offset this? So, so one way is to recognize, um, the, this belief that's at the core of these non-relational behaviors. And now this is what I call the belief in a hierarchy of moral worth, this belief that some individuals or groups are more worthy of being treated with respect than others. As and in this, celebrity versus, you know, other people. You know, the way. Well, as in white people yeah. versus non-white people, as in humans or animals, as in men or people of other genders. This myth is at lies at the core of every form of injustice. If you whittle them all down, like we, we tend to, you know, sort of when we're thinking of injustice and harm in the world, we tend to look at who is oppressing or abusing whom. And we target, you know, sort of one form of oppression or abuse at a time. And it's okay. We have limited energy. We have to focus on what we care most about or where we're most effective. It's also important though, to look at the root of all of these, the core of all of these, and at the root of all of these forms of injustice, and not just in our world, but in our personal lives, is this belief in a hierarchy of worth, belief that this Some person individuals, is greater than this and that person is yeah, lower. Yeah, it's more worthy of being treated order. with respect than others. And we do this. You can see people who are, you know, great activists for peace and compassion. Like, let's talk about some maybe vegan activists we know who are, you know, talking about universal compassion for all beings and yet berating people on social media who don't share their values, Mm. you know, or great humanitarians, um, you know, who at home are demeaning their partners and their children. So because this belief is being expressed, maybe on the interpersonal level, like in a family system, even as, you know, there's some social justice activist 
on the collective level, you know, talking about something else. So whenever we treat somebody as less than, it's because we believe that they deserve to be treated as less than because they disagree with our values, because they've caused harm or whatever. And then like, so when I go to Poland, uh, my mother-in-law, they keep chickens and there's a pecking order. There's, there's the rooster and then he's protecting them and you go into the pen and the rooster nearly plucks at your shins to get away more than my hens. Mm. And, and I've heard that there's a pecking order amongst the hens, you mm-hmm. know, where they sit and what they happen. And hens are mammals and were mammals. Is there this innate pecking order that well, we... Well, there seems to be a social finish, pecking there, order. There seems to be a social pecking order that almost innately we, we form without discussing. Is that true or am I wrong about that? Because does that affect how we construct dignity and that some person is greater, some is less? Is that we're almost having to think and reconstruct our natural, something that happens innately or am I totally wrong? And I'm just curious. I'm just questioning. I'm yeah. trying to grapple with this in my head. It's a really good question. I mean, we have both where we are hardwired to be hierarchical in certain ways, you know, like as you've just, as, you, as you've described, we're also hardwired to be very communal and, and, you know, very collectivistic in certain ways too. We depended on the tribe mm. to, to survive. Um, and we're hardwired. We know this, we're hardwired to feel empathy for others. And in order to harm somebody else, you know, we really have to disconnect from our empathy from, from them. And we're hardwired to seek meaningful connections with others. So even though we've done historically, there has been a pecking order in many, in many ways, in many societies, of course, um, we are now in a position, you know, where we have many of us anyway, have the ability to pause and rethink our actions. You know, in the past, we would have gotten angry at our partner and punched them in the face, you know, and we were Neanderthal, (laughs) bang over the head. Um, We don't do that anymore, right? Like we know there's a choice now, not to be that way. Now we just build it inside ourselves (laughs) and then go for a run or something. (laughs) Hi, how are you? Now we're just passive aggressive. (laughs) (laughs) Threaten them with abandonment or something. Um, So, yeah, so so, um, this belief... And I know I I can imagine for a lot of listeners, because I've talked about this a lot and I hear this, you know, when I'm talking, for example, with vegans about infighting and like how important it is for us to, you know, really infighting mean as in fighting within it just as movement. Yeah. Fighting within your own group, right. Fighting against people within your own group. You've got a difference of opinion, you know, opinion or a difference of approach or or whatever it is. And, you know, infighting is it bleeds a tremendous amount of resources from a movement. And I, I talk about the importance of like, you know, avoiding in, in my talks on infighting, I'm talking a lot about contempt and avoiding contempt to the best of our ability and avoiding shaming because of the harm it causes. Um, and I, I will hear over and over and over again, but what about this? But what about, but what about somebody who is hurting the movement? Don't they deserve to be shamed? But what about somebody who's eating animals and they're hurting animals? Don't they deserve to be shamed? And it's, it's so hard for us to get unstuck from this idea, you know, that, certain behaviors like, well, you know, as long, if somebody's, if somebody is doing something that's abusive, then it gives me a free pass to be abusive to them. You know, it's so hard to get unstuck from this. But one thing that's really important to recognize is that this, this myth, you know, of a hierarchy of moral worth that some are more worthy of, of respect than others. This, some people are some kind of like some individuals, some individuals, because this is, this applies to animals as well. Right. So, um, this myth reflects a profound misunderstanding of human psychology. And, you know, we are 
all of us, we are nothing more and nothing less than our hardwiring and biology that we came into this life with and every single experience we have ever had. We cannot be any more nor any less than that. So when we expect somebody to be different from who and how they are, that's like expecting a tree that's been rained on not to be wet. And it just doesn't, it doesn't make any rational sense. And so we are all quite good at putting ourselves, you know, like basically appointing ourselves the moral police. If I, if I were you, I wouldn't have done that. Moral police. That's a great Right. If I were you, I wouldn't have done that. Well, if I were you, of course I would have done that because I would have been you and you did that <laughs> if I had been yeah. raised in your family. And, and a lot of people will say, but, you know, well, let's compare two people who had the exact same background. And yet one went on to be a great success and humanitarian and the other is spending the rest of their life in prison. Well, nobody has the exact same background. Well, we, we've had probably as close as you're going to get being identical twins that mm. grew up and work together and do everything. Yet we're still very different people like. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And I mean, different. we're 99.999 genetically and identical. You could still and press, there's different buttons on both <laughs> of us. You could press like, you know, you could trigger Steve in a certain way and trigger me in a different way. And we've got different, you know, yep. emotional points. So, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's a great point. So it's like we're nobody can be different from who and how they are. And like if you had been, you know, you had a five minute experience that was different from your five minute experience, that could have shifted the trajectory of your life in a profound way that you're, you're not even aware of. So this doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable, you know, and encourage people to change problematic behaviors. It just means that we have to honor their dignity in, in, in the process. And so, so how do we do it? So, so, okay, like right now, everyone is the culmination of their own experience and they can't be anything but themselves. They can't kind of, you know, it's difficult and difficult to kind of change yourself like that. You know, all of us want to be, everyone listening goes, okay, I want to be, I want to better relationships. I want to be a kinder, more compassionate person. I want to practice integrity. I want to honor people's dignity and therefore my relationships will prosper. Like, how do I do this? Like mm -hmm. as an individual, do I kind of, do I have to kind of just, it does it start with awareness, becoming hyper aware. And it like, it goes through phases. Like I'll notice when I'm working on a relationship, I'm working on my relationship with Stephen, I'll be hyper aware for a bit. And then I'll fall back into the old part of It'll be, you know, I'll be aware, aware, and I'll be really nice and kind and kind. And then it'll fall back and I'm better than you. Why didn't you do that? You know, whatever it might, you know, it'll go up. Judgment. You know, so, so how, how do we apply, how do I apply this to learn it? Like how does, and everyone listening, it's the same. Yeah. Well, I mean, to your point, awareness is really important. So like aware that there is this myth, aware that worth, you know, comparing worth, it, it, it is based on a myth, aware that we're all doing the best we can with what we have and we cannot be, you know, any different than, than what we are, but it doesn't mean that we can't, you know, try that we, that we can't reflect and make choices now that help sh direct us toward the future that we want. And how do we make those choices? Like, what are those choices? What, what do they look like? So one thing that can be really helpful for people to know is, is that, you know, you're simply practicing healthy relational dynamics, like what we're talking about here you can grow a lot in relationship, you know, so the formula, you can come back to this formula at any moment in time and ask yourself and just say, you know, notice. So start to pay attention to how you're feeling in an interaction. Notice if you're like feeling smaller. Notice if you're feeling like it's, you know, a good sign of a, of a healthy relationship. It's not always the case, but very often is that it's easier for you to be your better self. You know, and then there are some relationships where you really struggle to be your better self, 
you know, so start paying attention to how you feel in your relationships and, you know, really learn to honor the process rather than over-focus on the content of an interaction. And I'll explain what this means because yeah, this is amazing. a practical yeah. way. Oh, I love this one. We've yeah. talked about, we've talked this, about this, this before. Was, this was a huge breakthrough and so, I've forgotten it, but I, I feel like I really want this. I remember <laughs> so hearing it let's last Let's look time. at this with communication. As I said, communication is the primary way we relate. Like all communication has two parts, the content and the process. The content of a communication is what we're communicating about. It's the subject, right? And the process is how we're communicating. We all tend to overfocus on the content and underfocus on the process, but the process matters much, much more, right? So we, um, you know, if you think about, I like to use this as an example, think about a conversation you had maybe like six months ago at a dinner party or whatever, it's possible that you forgot the entire content. You actually don't even remember what you talked about, but you probably still remember how you felt in that conversation. The process determines how you feel. When our process is healthy, we can talk about anything without fighting. And when our process is unhealthy, non-relational, we can't talk about anything without arguing. You might know people who are really totally on the same page about so many things, and yet they never, nevertheless find a way to argue. Um, so in a healthy process, um, we honor the formula, of course. The formula is all about a healthy process. Um, and in a healthy process, when we're communicating, our goal is not to be right, which means to make the other person wrong. It's yeah. not to win. It's respect their dignity. Right. It's, it's not to win, which means to make the other person lose. Right. It's, near, it's nearly like, a, like what you're saying is it really strikes a chord with me and feels mm. so true. And it also being, feels in juxtaposition to so much of the system of which we grow up in. Like when I hear you talk about competitive, like so much of it is about yeah. I'm right, you're wrong. Like I'm so better, much. Of I it. run faster than you. I have more gold medals. So therefore you should I have be more nicer stuff to me. than you. So I'm I, more valuable than you. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly right. And the world is really in many ways, you know, this very, non-relational world that we've been born into in many ways. It, it is constructed to socialize us, to think in terms of me versus you rather than me and you. To think of like, you know, uh, the only way for me to feel worthy is by finding somebody less worthy to compare myself to. And, you know, or to put somebody down so that I can prop myself up. And this is, of course, very short-lived sense of worth. It's not true worth. It's a illusory worth. Um, and so, yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right. And, and this is why, you know, when we're talking about communication, the debate model is usually counterproductive. The debate model, you know, debating is effective in very specific types of situations, like in a courtroom, for example, yeah. when somebody's running for political office. But outside of that, you know, so often when we're communicating, we think we go into debate. We go into like, okay, it's all about one the content. For you, two points for you, one points for me. How do I get a better point? I've got to make, take them down, you know. Right. I want to win. I want to prove to you that you're wrong and I'm right. And this is what, like, you know, when we have a difference of want, a difference of need, a difference of opinion, whatever it may be, for most of us, the default, or many of us anyway, the default is to debate. And it's like, okay, if I can just come up with all of the reasons, the rationale as to why I'm right and you're wrong, we'll find, you know, this will be over, this conversation will be over. But but this leaves, I mean, think about what, what relationship do you want to be in where there's a winner and a loser? Like if there's a loser in a relationship, the relationship loses. Yeah. And so in a healthy process- 
the goal of the communication, communicative process, the goal of the communication is not to be right and it's not to win. It's mutual understanding. The only reason that we communicate is because we're not mind readers. The goal of communication is to let the other person know what we think and feel and need, perhaps need, and to understand what the other person thinks and feels and needs. That is why we communicate. But we kind of need to be reminded that every 10 minutes or every 15 <laughs> minutes because the pro social programming is that like, even you I've got to show someone I'm better than them. So they give me my worth or something, you know, it's like, it's, uh, it, it, it plays out very differently. It's the default mode that we go into this default mode of being like competitive and seeing ourselves as these, you know, separate entities that are totally dependent on boosting ourselves up in order to boosting our sense of ourselves up in order to just feel okay. And we always do that or often do that by putting others down. Even if it's just in our minds, comparing ourselves like, oh, I'm smarter than this person. I'm more attractive than this person. I'm more successful or I'm more, you know, we're talking to people who are, you know, perhaps activists listening to this or advocates, you know, oh, I'm more moral. I'm, you know, I'm doing more good in the world. Wow. Because it's like one of the most profound things you just said there, to, which I heard at least or that I picked up was like the goal of any communication is mutual understanding because, you know, so much of my upbringing, the goal of communication was to prove you're right and the other person's wrong. Or, or you're to more justified. Right, to prove you're yeah, right. Yeah, one of these. <laughs> to prove yeah, I'm exactly. worthy. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. Whereas it's mutual understanding. And so much of our, our worth we get, like, you know, they go hand in hand, right? So often we feel like, you know, being right makes us more worthy. Oh, see, my opinion was better than your opinion. You know, I'm more, I've valuable, won. I'm more valuable. I'm more worthy. Like we're constantly, you know, when we, the more we can identify, the more we can understand this myth, you know, that, that this sense of like unworthiness and unworthiness in ourselves or others results from a myth, believing in this myth. The more we recognize this myth for what it is, the less we buy into it, you know, and the more we can sort of detach from it. But this is a lifelong process. I mean, this is Buddha talked yeah. about this. Like ultimately what I was a huge amount of your work mm -hmm. is spirit. Like a lot of what you're talking about is like spiritual wisdom, but putting it through a lens of rational, logical justification. And when you say it, it's like, wow, it's very profound. Like I feel mm -hmm. really right in the in my chest, it's like, wow, this is deep. Well, integrity and, and integrity and dignity are like very lofty. Like they, I don't know if you call them a value or what they are, but they're really kind of aspirational ways for us to be, relative to how most of us are on a daily basis. Yeah, and they can be they can be sort of um, you know goalposts for or, yeah. or like the north star for us to follow. Yeah. Sort of, you know, you have to keep coming back to it, as you pointed out earlier. You kind of have to keep reminding yourself and and surrounding yourself with it. Like the more you surround yourself with people who are committed to sharing these values and practicing relational literacy or healthy relationality, the easier it becomes, and the healthier you become relationally. The more we mature relationally the lower our tolerance for unhealthy relationships becomes like, you know, you so think about true. when you're in your twenties and maybe, you know, you're your teens and, and you're, yeah. right. You know, you're just like people who you might behaviors that you might now find toxic is sort of like, you know, I think about relational health being a lot like physical health where, you know, when you're used to eating like chips, you know, Doritos every day and smoking cigarettes every day, when you put these foods in your body, your body, 
just accepts them. But then when you stop eating Doritos and start eating a healthy diet and you quit smoking and you reintroduce them into your body, your body recognizes them as the poison that they are. And it's the same thing with relationships. It's like your body, you start to have this sort of like reaction. You find relationships or behaviors, I should say, non-relational behaviors or unhealthy behaviors start to feel toxic to you, the healthier you become. Yeah, it's amazing. I always say that to my wife, uh, like, you know, in in a, in any relationship, any romantic relationships, there's going to be certain things you're very good at as a couple and certain things you'll have weaknesses in. And I always found with my wife that I'd always say to her, like, you're like an Olympic gold medal in terms of communication. And she's definitely Mm. upped my game in terms of becoming more aware that the process is more important than the content. Mm. Cause I, I, like she, she makes me feel very safe to say whatever I want or need to say, and she'll listen to it or she'll tell me exactly what she feels. And there'll be no, she won't even flinch. She won't even flinch with anything I'll say. She'll go, thanks so much for sharing that. I mean, that was, re-, you know, and it, and it makes me feel so safe in the relationship, which is, you know, which is that integrity and dignity piece which you're talking about, which yeah, definitely. I, hadn't, I hadn't experienced that before in a relationship, in a, in a romantic relationship where, where it's just the, 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 the process is so relevant rather than the content. And you're probably sharing information with her in a way that helps her be open to it. Right. I mean, you're probably communicating with her with regard to her response, right? You're not just like spewing stuff at her. That's really triggering. So you're playing a part in this as oh, well. The pair of us are like each, every person who you interact with mm-hmm. some, you can, you know, you, you link in really well and others you don't. And certainly with my wife, it's very easy. Communication is really, it's really, really easy. Um, and yeah. it seems mutual understanding is the goal. Absolutely, yeah, mutual understanding. Wrong. It really is that you're, I'm not a mind reader, you know, and Shawnee here will often say, oh, I forgot to have my mind reading tablets today. My <laughs> mind reading tablets as in like, that, that's the deal. You know, and I think it's a funny line because um, some of us think like, oh, do you not know that I want to do that? And it's like, well, you didn't tell me, like I did, forgot to take my mind reading tablets today. Like, like, like what role does meditation or mindfulness or the practice of growing one's awareness play in this because often like in psychology it can often seem at ends to any kind of not necessarily spiritual practice but meditation can often be seen as spiritual but ultimately it's about greater self-reflection and greater self-awareness what role can this play in terms of our relational literacy and building our kind of ability to be better relationship people relationshipers relationship <laughs> relators. Like relators there you are that's <laughs> the word yeah communicators communicate oh, there we go <laughs> I mean, they, they go hand in hand, you know, they really, it, it, and it depends on how you approach them. Right. But, but really, um, the more like Sam Harris says that the most important thing any of us can do is, is, you know, practice, like create a healthy mind, you know, it's make sure that your mind is healthy, as healthy as it can be. That's the way that he describes it. And I think that there's a lot, a lot of truth in that it's, you know, if we haven't taken care of ourselves and and built self-awareness, you know, learned how to build self-awareness, learned how to become more mindful, practice mindfulness, it's going to be harder for us to practice the formula. You know, if you just think about it, the more, the more cluttered your mind is, the more you're not reflecting on yourself, right? So if you're not self-aware, for instance, you know, you're less likely to recognize when you're in contempt, And you're more likely then to act out that contempt on somebody else. So the practice of mindfulness, the practice of self-awareness and self-reflection, developing this inner observer 
and beyond that. Um, but let's just talk about the inner observer. That's a part of many forms of mindfulness practice anyway, you know, where you, you build this sort of observational muscle inside of yourself to start really noticing what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're needing, you know, throughout the day so that you don't get hijacked by your thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and then act out on the people around you who then will act out in response. Um, and so th this is a really important, I think, piece of the process. And, you know, for me, certainly a meditation practice is in incredibly, incredibly important. And, and then also vice versa, we can become more mindful by becoming more relational. You know, I think of it as relational mindfulness, um, where, you know, in order to practice the formula, it does require you to slow down. It requires you to be present. I see healthy relationality as a, as in some ways a spiritual practice, because to really be healthy relationally, you need to be in a greater place of presence. You need to just stop and tune into what's happening in the moment. Mutual understanding, two ears, one mouth. That's right. Exactly. That's right. You can't have a healthy interaction if you are not bringing yourself to some degree into a place of curiosity and compassion, you know, and curiosity and compassion are obviously what you're also trying to cultivate when you're practicing mindfulness. So it's, it's very, very important. And, you know, maybe one way to, to really understand this is to look at the role of dysregulation in the problems in our relationships and also the problems in our world, because they're also interconnected. And have you heard this term before you're no. familiar with it? So, no. so dysregulation to, when you're dysregulated, this means that your nervous system is out of balance. That's all it means. Everybody knows what it feels like to be dysregulated because we're all in and out you of. You could be stressed. You could be worried. You could be anxious. All these are states totally. of dysregulation. Yeah, Like exactly. we're not in kind of rest and restore and calm and present. We're in and a parasympathetic nervous system. Exactly. So like when you're regulated, basically, your nervous system is balanced, right? You can think about when you're in, again, dysregulation, like most things in life, maybe everything, I don't know exists on a spectrum, right? You can be extremely dysregulated, which is referred to as being flooded, you know, or you can be mildly dysregulated, you know? So if you think, you know, in your perfect regulation moment, you know, maybe you're like lying in bed, reading a book, I don't, whatever it may be, you know, that's your, your like total comfort zone. And then wild dysregulation, you're just like extremely stressed out. When we're dysregulated, you know, we're basically in a state of fight, flight, or freeze, and yeah. what that means is that we are less rational. We have less access to our rational faculties and we're less connected to our empathy. And of course, this makes sense. When you're dysregulated, your body and mind are experiencing a threat and they go into, you go into survival mode. And like somebody who's drowning is not somebody who's going to be having a political conversation, sophisticated political sure. conversation. They're just grabbing for anything that floats. So... When we're more self-aware, we're better able to notice when we're self-regulated, uh, when we're dysregulated. Um, and then we're also better able to self-regulate. And we can talk about what that looks like because it can be an incredible tool for people, you know, to help bring themselves into a place of balance. When we're less self-aware, a lot of people are chronically dysregulated and they don't know it. Or they, they get dysregulated and they don't know it. And the thing is that dysregulated people dysregulate people. Yeah. Dysregulation is contagious. You may have seen this. Yeah, wow. definitely. Yeah. Like hurt people hurt people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And dysregulated pe dysregulation is contagious for two reasons. One reason is because 
emotions are contagious. You know, if you're around somebody who has any kind of like, especially if it's a strong emotion, you're going to probably pick that up to some degree. If you have any amount of empathy, you will start feeling that emotion a little bit. And dysregulation is also contagious because when you're dysregulated, you're more likely to act in ways that are non-relational, to do things that violate the formula. And when you do that, the other person, studies have shown that when somebody's on the receiving end, of the, you can call we can call these toxic behaviors, you know, or toxic communications. That person on the receiving end of the toxic communication is more likely to respond with the toxic communication and also later in the day to go out and do things that are toxic to other people who had nothing to do with the interaction. Yeah. You know, so this is what I said earlier. Researchers say these behaviors, they spread like the common cold. When we're more self-aware and when we've learned to regulate through meditation or other means, self-regulate, bring ourselves into a state of regulation, we're much better able to practice the formula. You know, you could know the formula, but if you're not self-aware and you don't realize that you're dysregulated, you might end up just saying like, oh my God, it's just too hard. And, you know, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Just let it rip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one one of the keys to regulation and or one of the many tools I think is breath. You know, typically when one is out of regulation, their breathing is either re- well, typically it's physiological is, is, response is very it's heightened. And ultimately if one can bring your breath down to kind of a calm, larger exhale than inhale, typically you're bringing yourself down to regulation. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. And you know, you can help regulate others. Like there's something called co-regulation. Oh yeah. yeah. Co-regulation is the process of somebody with a regulated nervous system bringing others into a state of regulation and like when you meet someone mm-hmm. who's really calm and slow and it's like oh my god i just love their energy because it just I feel slow. like a warm fire <laughs> can i bathe in your <laughs> yeah. energy yeah, yeah, yeah totally that's co-regulation yeah co-regulation. I like co-regulation yeah yeah remember there was like 30 women came to the farm on saturday they were doing some like spiritual meditation type thing and they came to the farm and, and afterwards I was like geez I could bathe in their energy you felt so like can like, I just sit down can here I just, just like sit can I just hang out with you guys I don't really need to talk like just sit in the same room because their energy was so calm and lovely it was really nice healing yeah but that's a perfect that's that a great example yeah. absolutely co-regulation there are different techniques that people can do like if you're close to a person you know you're not you know eye contact for many people not everybody you know sometimes physical touch can be co-regulating but One thing to keep in mind is that very often the dysregulated person is the person who sets the tone. Like Uh, you're around somebody who's dysregulated, you're like, yeah, your emotions start to spike. But just knowing, like being able to identify dysregulation as dysregulation instead of seeing this person and being like, what a jerk. Or, oh, this person is just like a hot mess. They're just out of control. Look at them instead and say, oh, this person seems dysregulated, you know, and and my, knowing my wife that will say to me, my wife will say to me, I think you need to go for a run or you need to go for a walk or something. <laughs> You're like, energy is way too big for the room here. You need to go do something. <laughs> you you can't like went for dinner or something, you know, that she'll, she'll see in the same room as you guys. <laughs> she'll say, you, go, you need, you need to go them. move. You need to do something to, to, to move it. Yeah. But that's perfect. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, like knowing how to regulate yourself is huge, but you, you know yourself well enough, but a lot of people, 
you know, they've sort of developed these coping me- mechanisms over the years to self-regulate because we're constantly striving. with alcohol or with energy drinks or chocolate bars that's right. or coffee. Or it could be porn. It could be or, all these or things. Or any ways of avoiding that's pain. Right. All the various means Food. that we have to avoid pain. Food. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And so dysregulation is one of the things that keeps us out of the formula, unable to practice a formula, you know, yeah. or, or makes it harder to. Because we're in our survival brain rather than in our we're aspirational, tra- tra- higher right. values, moral, you know, integrity, dignity brain. That's right. I'd love to talk about carnism because car- mm-hmm. like that's how our worlds collided is really with your, mm-hmm. with your incredible book, um, Why We Eat Pigs and... We wear cows and we uh, love dogs. And we love dogs. Do why, we right? lo- why we eat pigs, love dogs and wear cows. Well, the, the, the parts of the parts are right in just in different <laughs> orders. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. <laughs> but that's sort of the whole point of the title. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, it really is. And I think it's such a good title. But carnism is a is a phrase which you've which coined. You've coined and it's it's mm. such a like cause we like I, we grew up eating meat as people did. That was just what everyone did. Our parents did it, society did, that was just normal. Um, and you know, unbeknownst that we th- what would happen, we were twenty one or twenty two, and we we realized that eating meat was optional; it wasn't ne- 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 a necessity, and we stopped eating animals from there on, and realized that it was it wasn't what we wanted to do, and there was a lot of injustices and oppression around it. And you've coined the word carnism, which is really this. You're better talking about it than me. Do you mind telling us what carnism is? <laughs> so carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. It's the, it's the opposite of veganism, basically. And, you know, just to, it, often we assume that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system. But the only reason we might eat pigs but not dogs, for example, is because we do have a belief system when it comes to eating animals. So this is one way to to think about carnism. Is it's this invisible belief system, though. Still, it's largely invisible um, because it's dominant. And sometimes people say, "Well, you know, in the West we eat pigs, but not dogs. But in some places they eat dogs. But carnism is, um, you know, it's it's a global system. So in meat eating cultures around the world." People, you know, all learn to classify a small animal of animals as edible and all the rest they classify as inedible and disgusting to consume. It's just that the the type of species consumed changes from culture to culture. But the way we think about and relate to the species that we've learned to classify as edible is the same. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. So whether it's dogs that you're eating or pigs that you're eating or cows that you're eating, we all have learned carnism has basically created this mentality in all of us that are born into carnism. And it's, it's the same formula applies to that, because if I'm going to eat an animal, I'm obviously not respecting its dignity because I believe that I'm morally, morally, quite likely morally superior because I'm taking its life. Like I am part of the process of taking its life, That's whether right. I'm just eating it or. But you don't even notice that, like, I thought it was fascinating when you said there that it's like vegetarian or vegan, it's, it's a choice. But also carnism is a choice, but we don't even know it. It's just, it's, 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 it's the like, default, it's, it's the default like, setting. It's yeah. a bit like modern unrelational like, or what do you call it? Um, dysregulated. Po- or- poor relationships is the norm. Like, you know, most relationships aren't about mutual understanding. It's, it's about so many other subtle things. It's, and it's a bit like carnism is just the norm. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're totally right. And it's tricky with carnism. It It's a choice and it's not a choice at the same time, right? Without awareness, there's no free choice. 
And when people aren't aware, like, you know, when I, I grew up eating animals, um, and throughout so much of my life, nobody ever asked me how I felt about eating animals. If I wanted to eat animals, if I believed in eating animals, eating animals was just the way things are, you know, it was just a given it was the norm. And so I never felt that I was actively making a choice when it came to eating animals. It was a choice, but it wasn't a choice that was like a conscious choice, you know? So talking about carnism is really important for, I think a lot of different reasons, but one important reason is because it makes it really clear that there is a choice. There's, you know, when you are eating animals, you can choose not to eat animals. You know, this is, this is one belief system, but there are other belief systems that exist as well. Veganism is not, you know, a belief system in eating animals is just somehow morally neutral or mm. a neutral set of behaviors. But maybe even more importantly is that carnism is not just a belief system. It's a particular type of belief system. It's, um, it's an oppressive system. It's a system, an ism that is structured the same way that, you know, sexism or patriarchy is structured or classism or racism you know, and it's based on the same mentality that drives these other problematic isms. It's the same mental- non-relational mentality that we've been talking about, which causes us to think of, you know, certain individuals as less worthy of having their interests honored, you know, and here we're talking about lives and deaths. It's also, it's really important to say that I'm not, and never do I compare the victims of these different systems of oppression. The experience of these, each set of victims will always be unique but the mentality that drives them is the same. It's the same mentality that causes us to disconnect from our empathy, from others, and and from our rationality to a large degree. So like, for example, you know, if you imagine, this is the example I always use, imagine that like, you know, you're not a vegan and you're sitting down and you're eating, you know, biting into a hamburger and your dining companion turns to you and says, well, that hamburger is actually made from golden retrievers, you know? Chances are what you had just thought of as food, you now think of as a dead animal. So your thoughts here completely changed. Your perceptions completely changed. And therefore your feelings will completely change. What you just felt was delicious. You now suddenly feel is disgusting. And now your feelings drive your behaviors. So your behaviors probably completely change. Instead of continuing to eat the hamburger, you probably want to throw it in the trash and maybe even take to the streets and protest. Um, Carnism distorts our perceptions, our thoughts, disconnects us from our natural feelings, our empathy, and drives our behaviors. So through carnism, we don't see dead animals as dead animals. We see them as food. We perceive them as delicious and we eat them. So your reaction to the golden retriever burger, that's your authentic reaction. That's the way, you know, you would react, that you you react to the idea of eating an animal that you haven't been deeply, deeply conditioned to disconnect from. Yeah, deeply is so true because I remember being, we used to, when we were very little, we used to be, go to granny, our granny and granddad's every Sunday and we'd have to drive there. And I remember passing by all the sheep and going lamb, we were going to eat lamb and like granny always cooked lamb on a Sunday and there was lambs in the field and it was, Daddy is the lamb in the fields the same as the lamb that Granny feels, and it, and somehow you know obviously you you trust your parents and you follow your parents and you just kind of no it it is the same but don't worry we all eat blah 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 and you just kind of went along with it but the start of the programming had the modeling obviously it started because you just follow what your you know your tribe does and then when you start to question it if you're 
you know, unless you're strong and really understand it, you tend to, the culture tends to consume you. The it just pulls you right back yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. It just pulls you right back in and kill children do like a lot of children will at some point question it, be like, Oh, Oh, where did chicken come? Where does chicken come from? Yeah. Well, chicken comes from chickens. What? Chicken comes from, wait, we're eating, we're eating chickens, you know? <laughs> and then kids get, we get re-socialized and pulled back into this carnistic cocoon of unknowing. Um, and so this, this mentality, I call it the carnistic mentality. It's, it's the same. It's this non-relational mentality that causes us to violate the formula without realizing and what we're doing. It's all based around dignity. It's the dignity bit that we're typically violating. Oh, both. Actually, integrity, because we're not treating it's the, the integrity. chicken the way we want to That's right. be treated. Or the way we imagine our dog would want to be treated. Yeah. Right? Like, it's a lot easier for us to practice the formula toward our dog or our cat because we recognize them as beings, you know, and we haven't been, we haven't been so deeply socialized to think of them as abstractions, as objects, you know, to disconnect from them. And frankly, many, many people, when they're up close with chickens and with cows and with pigs and even with fish, do not feel comfortable eating them. You know, when I was working on my doctoral dissertation on the psychology of eating animals, and I was interviewing people who killed their own animals for food. They would say, I don't, I don't, I don't name the chickens I'm going to kill. No way. And, you know, one guy was like, I named some chickens and that's that not going to kill them. I mean, some people can override this natural impulse, you know, their empathy, but we can override our empathy when it comes to not harming humans as well. It doesn't mean that's the right thing to do, but most people are very uncomfortable with the idea of causing unnecessary harm to other animals. Like, I mean, most people cringe at the, at images of animals suffering, um, I, I find it amazing. Like, uh, like, uh, I think they put lots of rodent poison down near the beach somewhere down there. So, mm -hmm. so the, and I saw a, a big rat, a big rat on the middle of the footpath and you see everyone going past going, Oh, or like they're mostly disgusted, but sometimes I've seen a fox or something there mm -hmm. and everyone walks by and goes, Oh, the poor fox and it's gone. You hypocrite. You probably mm. had chicken for dinner and you probably had bacon at least once this week and you're giving it at the fox. And like, obviously it's all, it's so, so deeply socialized mm -hmm. and we all, most people just do it because that's just what everyone does and don't think about it. But the irony, the fox gets empathy, you know, after it's Versus been killed, whereas a chicken or a, or a cow or any of these other animals don't typically get You're totally empathy. right. I mean, and I would say, you know, if it had been a pig on the beach, the individual pig, people probably would have stopped or a cow on the beach who was also dead, lying there dead or suffering. People probably would have stopped and expressed empathy because their defenses, their carnistic defenses would have been broken through. So let me explain what I mean by this. Carnistic defense is yeah. amazing. So we, we are, you know, because we are hardwired to feel empathy for others, because most people care about other animals and would never want to contribute to their suffering, especially when that suffering is completely unnecessary, you know, and, and also very extensive. Carnism needs to use these defense mechanisms, you know, to get us to continue supporting it, essentially. These are psychological defenses that distort our perceptions and disconnect us from our empathy for these animals. And so one defense is, you know, to simplify it, we'll call it abstraction. We learn to think of farmed animals as abstractions, you know, so we don't think about pigs as having their own personalities, their own characteristics as individuals with, you know, unique lives that matter to them, just like all of our lives matter to us, just like our dog. We know our dog's lives matter to them. We just think in our minds, a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. Um, 
Another defense is objectification, you know? So we think of farmed animals as objects, as things rather than beings. Commodities. As commodities, which they literally, you know, are being used as. So we, when we refer to the chicken on our plate, we refer to that as something rather than someone, right? But when our carnistic defenses are broken through, when we see an individual, so say we see an individual chicken who's lying on the beach, who's been poisoned, and there are no other chickens around, that chicken's not an abstraction anymore. That's an individual. That chicken is not necessarily seen as an object, especially if the chicken is still slightly alive. We break through carnistic defenses and you can see this over and over again. You know, people go to petting zoos to, to pet the farmed animals who they would rescue if they saw suffering. And, you know, then they may go to the grocery store next door and leave out, leave with like, you know, packages of bacon and eggs. Um, but breaking through the defenses is, is so, so important. And, you know, and one of the things, one of the reasons that I wrote how to on end injustice everywhere, I wrote it for a lot of reasons, but it's because I, you know, many people who are aware of the fact that injustices toward humans are, you know, reflect this, a problematic mentality. They may not have given it a name before, but, you know, a problematic way of thinking don't include animals in the conversation, you know, and they don't recognize that the very same mentality that causes us to harm the dignity, violate our integrity and harm the dignity of humans, causes us to violate our integrity toward animals and harm the dignity of animals. And that this mentality will reproduce itself. You know, it's like we could achieve justice for all human beings, but as long as we are engaging, we are like watering the seeds of the non-relational mentality when it comes to animals, we're going to keep re reproducing this same problematic mindset. Same with nature as well. Same, same with, with nature. Dominion over nature. Totally. There's no respect and there's no dignity for nature. It's just, they're, once again, they're commodities which we can uh, abstract. Totally. How does one prevent oneself becoming morally superior? So say someone is mm. an ethical vegan and mm -hmm. they do it because they're pro-animal rights and mm -hmm. they're sitting with there with someone who's eating a chicken sandwich and they're loving it. They're going, oh my God, I love this chicken. Oh, why won't you eat it? And you're mm. sitting there going, because I'm so ethical. How does one prevent <laughs> one becoming morally superior? Yeah. Like, how does one, because it's it seems like it's almost like I'm better than you. And in it's very, it's, and it's, it's in our competitive society. How does one up in a society? Yeah. And especially when it comes to morals and ethics, you know, yeah. where people can say like, well, you know, I'm not being superficial. It's not that I'm saying I'm prettier than you or I'm smarter than you. I'm just, I'm just I'm more just moral. I'm, I'm just, just a better, better person than you. <laughs> but it's the same but quite mentality. Often when they say, I'm not saying this because that kind of means like they're saying, like right. they're saying it totally because. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, it comes down to recognizing. I mean, I don't, uh, yeah, I mean, so... I th to, to focus on behavior rather than on character, you can say, and to keep the language really real and concrete and accurate, right? So if I'm looking at somebody who's eating animals and I'm not eating animals, I'm not looking at them, for instance, thinking I'm a better person than they are. Because if I were raised the way that they had been raised in their brain and their body, I'd be eating animals. There's just no question about it. How could it be any other way? What I can look at is their behaviors, and I still wouldn't say my behaviors are better than theirs or my behaviors are more ethical than theirs. It's that's an abstraction. It's impossible to even compare or judge. I can say that 
my behaviors are causing less harm, probably causing less harm to animals than their behaviors are. I mean, that's even, that's a whole other conversation, but, um, Keep your focus on the level of behaviors if you want to compare it all. But I would say get out of the comparison. Well, well, you know? well, that, that's once again, it's back to the ultimate spiritual truths, which are the backbones of all morality and religious even morality. It's like, do not judge. Like, do not judge in a sense, because basic, you're, you're particularly in a sense, because typical judgment leads to I'm better, I'm worse, I'm, you know, comparison and probably not really honoring people's integrity and their dignity. Right. And it doesn't work for you either. I mean, it's not, first of all, it's not even strategic, right? So for people who are trying to create a more vegan world, for instance, you know, getting out of a place of judgment is one really, really good way to help further the movement because people who feel judged are usually people who shut down to a message, you yeah. know, so they're less likely to hear our message. Having said that, I do want to honor the fact that judging is normal and it's inevitable. And we do it until we get to a point, you know, where I don't know, we're enlightened or something. We've broken out of the ego. You know, it's just really a matter of degree. And a lot of people who are awake to the fact that we are living in the midst of what can only be called a global atrocity when it comes to what the animals of this world are experiencing are deeply, deeply disturbed, understandably, rightfully so, many of whom are traumatized by what they've seen and feel an incredible, I mean, sense of urgency around the message that they're trying to communicate, which is commendable and also understandable and dysregulated, which is understandable. So I want to honor the fact that, you know, I don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good here and to like give vegans one more thing to feel like they have to do better, you know, and like, don't be judgmental, shall not you know, judge. don't, don't be ju like recognize. Yeah. Like we're like, you cannot, oh, you cannot wake up to the atrocity. You know, there are many atrocities happening in the world right now. You cannot be awake to these atrocities and not get kind of messed up in the head once you do to some degree and it's going to affect you. And it's going to, it takes a lot to be vegan in a non-vegan world. Like we are daily, our deepest sensibilities are offended. You know, you walk out the door and you see a, a, meat, a meat truck and that to you is a truck of body parts driving down the street. This is what many people who are vegan have to live with every single day and are doing the very best they can with this reality that they have been served. And, and at the same time, it serves all of us like to, to step back from this place of judgment and contempt for people who are eating animals and recognize, this is another reason that understanding carnism can be helpful, recognize that good people can participate in harmful practices and it doesn't make them bad people. It makes them people who have been deeply socialized and conditioned to act a certain way. And you may, like a listener might be thinking, well, hey, I was born into this system and I stepped out of it. You know, I saw earthlings and that was it. I never ate animals again. Well, that that's, I wish that were true for everybody. And it's not, you know, people who stop eating animals immediately, or even who stop eating animals at all, you know, they're often outliers. And we tend to assume that everybody operates the way that we do. And if not, they should, yeah, you know, yeah. so if this worked for me, it should work for you. If I did this, you should be doing this, you know, what's wrong with you, but we are wired so differently and, and so differently. And what seems so simple and reasonable to one person can feel like moving mountains to somebody else. So just as an example, I, years ago, I gave a talk on carnism 
And this woman came up to me afterwards and she was crying and crying. She said, she said, I agree with every word you said. It absolutely breaks my heart when I think about what's happening to the animals. And, and she said, I'm married to a man who is a, this is back when I lived in the U S she's married to a man who is, um, he hunts and he is, um, he eats a lot of meat and he has totally different values. And I have three children and I have no education and I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't go on my own. And I know my husband will never go for this. And I feel really trapped right now because I want to change and I'm afraid to change. And I don't think I can. And she articulated, I think an experience that a lot of people have quite, quite beautifully in a way. Um, people, people's relationships don't have to end because one person becomes vegan. Um, but often they do, you know, it causes disruption in relationships, Mm. you know, and for some people that disruption feels intolerable or for some people, you know, just doing this they is feel not so judged. If the other person changes and becomes vegan, they feel so judged. Their behavior is like, oh, I don't want to. That's right. You know. Or they're afraid their partner is going to leave them. You know, person mm. will say, I can't go vegan. My partner will leave. I can't go vegan. You know, my family will have a reaction. And, and some people are so uncomfortable with conflict, like deeply uncomfortable with conflict for so many different reasons that, you know, they'd rather. I heard somebody describe this once in a book. I don't remember who, but they'd rather this person wrote people pleasers would rather walk barefoot across the North pole than say no sometimes. And, um, we're wired very differently. And this is why when we're talking about making changes like dietary change, it's always, I find that it's always helpful to say, to ask people to be as vegan as possible, whatever that means to them. And then you, you create sort of safe parameters around it. But, but for people listening and thinking like, you know, how do I stop judging Stop judging by recognizing that people are very, very different and people make the choices they do for reasons that make total sense to them. It doesn't make them bad people. And think about things that you do. Like, you know, we're all, I don't like the word hypocrite. I don't even use the word hypocrite because I think it's a, I don't know, it's like something we've, some construct we've created, but we all live with contradictions, you know? So I'm sitting here talking to you about veganism and ending global injustice and I'm wearing these little boots that I got from, I think, I think Dykeman's or something. And they're, I I mean, I think they came from China. They were probably made, you know, they were made in China and then shipped to Germany and made in a factory. And I don't feel good about that. Um, And I thought about it actually, when I was buying shoes a few years ago and I thought I should really buy used shoes. Oh, it's so hard to buy used vegan shoes. Oh, maybe I should wear vegan, like used leather. And I was like, okay, I'm not wearing shoes at all. Forget it. I'm going to go barefoot. Yeah. Then there's the germs. So, you know, I mean, we all live, we, we live with so many contradictions. And, and so, so one way also to kind of take away this judgmental edge from our own sort of like internal, you know, our own experience is to just appreciate that we have inherited a mess. We have an inherited, a very messy world. We live in a very imperfect world. And what that means is that we have to make imperfect choices. We have to make different choices in this world than we would make if we lived in a perfect world. So maybe we have to feed our rescued cats meat because they can't tolerate the vegan cat food that we normally use, right? Well, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have rescued cats and we wouldn't have to choose to save one animal by contributing to the slaughter of another. But 
we all have to live with contradictions mm. in our lives. And so the more we wow. can appreciate this and practice that non-judgmentality to ourselves, our primary relationship is with ourselves, you know, um, the more spacious we become. Oh, I like Maybe. that. Here's a more spacious world. More what? I like that spacious. We become more spacious. We become less tight and narrow. And yeah, we have more wiggle room accepting. for the, you know, our beauty. So often, you know, again, we're trying to like, you know, be worthy and, you know, feel like we're, we want to present this shiny, happy, perfect face to the world. And we just don't realize like our, our, we're all fallible, messed up human beings and our beauty is in our messiness. You know, that's what makes us unique. That's what gives us the depth um, that's what makes us, you know, able to be vulnerable. And, um, when we can appreciate that our beauty is in our messiness, um, and not in spite of it, then we give ourselves a great gift and we bring this gift to our relationships as well. Jeez, you're brilliant. Well, I love it. I, love <laughs> I feel very inspired. I really do. For, for anyone listening who goes, yes, Melanie. So you've written a, a number Seven of books. books. Your latest book is How to End Injustice Everywhere. It's a really good read and it's quite technical, but it really breaks things down in kind of a practical. And it looks at the greater systemic isms and injustice and how one can, using the formula, can address them. Yeah. So this is like the, the, the formula is at the center of it, but then it, yeah, looks at, looks at the different systems. And then I have a book on, um, you know, how to just a one-stop guide to building relational literacy called getting relationships, right. Um, for anybody who really just wants Sounds to like build really relationship skills. Um, and so, so, I mean, it's a, it's always a work in progress, but I think if we can, you know, just remember people do say, you know, I, I don't know if we talked about this before, but a lot of people believe that, oh, well, I have to love, cause I was saying earlier, you know, our primary relationship is with ourselves because we're, we're always relating to ourselves. So practicing the formula toward ourselves is really, really important. And, you know, in terms of like breaking this sort of judgmental loop that we get stuck in, one way to do that is to just sort of pause and Ask if we're practice. Listen to your internal dialogue. How are you talking to yourself? You know, what are the choices that you're making that are about to impact your future self? <laughs> you know, are you are you outsourcing mm. things that you don't like to your future self, thinking your future self is going to want to do them more than you do? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, oh, I like that. Or am I giving too much now that later on I'm going to be exhausted? That's right, right. But just again, building that inner observer and asking, you know, am I practicing the formula toward myself? And am I feeling ashamed? You know, am I shaming myself? A lot of us shame ourselves. We compare ourselves, you know, with some idealized version of ourselves. This is how I should be. This is what I should have done. Um, you know, pause and notice that and try to, you know, bring yourself back to practicing this loving formula toward our, towards yourself. And, you know, but a lot of times we think we have to love ourselves before, you know, you've probably heard this. We have to love ourselves before we can love somebody else. And I think that that was an idea that somebody came up with a long time ago that sounded really good. That's mm. just sort of caught on, but that's probably not true. Like, you know, you new parents and partners can say, like, sometimes we learn to love ourselves through loving others. And yeah. this is the beauty of practicing the formula, you know, practicing the formula is practicing love ultimately towards somebody else. And the more you can do that, the more you practice the formula towards somebody else, the more the formula becomes normalized to you, the more you're exercising your muscles of compassion and curiosity and the more likely you are to do it to yourself. It's amazing. Yeah. Really you're is. very profound. Like for something Simple. that 
I could have initially judged as being rational and logical. It's deeply spiritual and it's of well, really primal morality. We're talking about human morality here at the core of all interactions and relationships and social structures and how to build a better world. Yeah, I like that. I love that phrase, primal reality. That's good. Sounds like a I didn't album. Even no- I didn't even notice they said it. <laughs> <laughs> it just came out. It's a coffee shop. <laughs> Wait, not morality. Reality, I said morality. Primal morality. That's cool. Morality, yeah. I like yeah. that. Yeah. So, some, some, some things that I've got out of it. Okay, so okay. awareness, whatever activity that helps promote more the observer that you can be more of yourself and how you're interacting in the world creates room for more self-reflection and that you can honor the formula. Um, other activities that you can do is the primal practice means the formula of, on yourself. Yeah. Or the primal means of communication is mutual understanding. It's not about oh, one-upping and being better than others. Mm. And that's such a basic when thing. When I hear that I feel guilty, I'm like, Whoa. oh crap. I'm trying to impress everyone I meet that I'm great. <laughs> Show them that I'm great. So they pat me in the back and go, you're a great lad. <laughs> well then practice the you're formula towards lad, yourself. Though, you're a great lad. I uh, you know. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Steve. Thanks. One up for you. One up for you. Gold star for you. <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah. No, and, and yeah, it's just so, so. Yeah, I love your work. I think you're wonderful. And it's really an honor to have you here and to get to spend time. Thank you. Oh, it's been, I mean, the honor is mine. You, I can't wait to go on the tour and see, I mean, what you have created here and built up and this beautiful community you've surrounded yourselves with is just, it's testament to the energy that you are putting out in the world and the relationality that you're committed to. I mean, this is like a, this is like a case study in, in the formula. It's like the formula on a meta level, wide scale formula. It's really amazing. Oh, Thank you. Great. It's been incredible. Wow. Oh, great. Thank, well, you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank so you Melanie's book for any listening is out, How to End Injustice Everywhere. It's wonderful. It's a great read and it's really accessible to any injustice in the world. And you've got a great book on carnism as well, of which maybe you're better at saying the title. <laughs> you, say, you say the real title. You want to try to guess? Uh, no, no, he tried. Uh, how to, how to stop, or why what? we eat, uh, why we eat pigs, pigs, we wear, no, you got it wrong. Cows and we <laughs> love dogs. No. Why we love dogs, eat pigs and wear cows. cows. Yeah. Got it. Yes. You got it. Okay. No okay. turtles in the title. No turtles in the title. I love it. Uh, but thank you so much, Melly. You're wonderful. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that was great. She really is very spiritual. Like it's, it's hugely spiritual.